I invite you to turn with me to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk. Now, as students, you should know where to find it. But if you are having a bit of trouble, you can turn to the last book, the book of Malachi, and then turn back five books. Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai, Zephaniah, and then you'll find Habakkuk. Hey, Habakkuk. While you're turning there, though, I'd like you to try and imagine what it would be like to live in an absolutely corrupt society where everyone is violent, cruel, and doing whatever they want, whenever they want, to whomever they want. Where they all turn their backs on God and do their own thing, and they are living like the people as described in the book of Judges, as everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. To make matters worse, imagine that the government is just as corrupt. They're also doing their own things. They turn their backs on God. And in the middle of all of this is you, a believer, a person who aims to live a life that pleases God, believing in his promises that if we call upon him, he can heal our land. But imagine that after months of calling out to God, he seems to be doing nothing. It's as if your prayers are bouncing back at you off the ceiling. In fact, things don't improve, but they grow worse and worse every day. Violence becomes more violent, corruption becomes more corrupt, and imagine how you would feel after praying that way for maybe a year and no visible answer from God. Imagine how it would feel if this went on for 10 years, maybe 20 years. Would you begin to doubt God? Would you begin to think that He doesn't care or is not listening to you? Would you begin to ask the question, God, where are you? Where are you as the hatred and wars rage, as thousands of people are killed? Where are you when the people I love lie sick and dying in their beds? Where are you when the young women abort their unborn babies and adults abuse and rape our children? Where are you when there's no justice in the courts and criminals go free to continue their trade on our streets? God, where are you? And do you start to ask questions like that? Now, the situation I've just described is very relevant in today's context, isn't it? And I'm sure you're probably thinking I'm describing a particular country in the modern world. Well, although that description does match many countries we see today, I was actually describing the land of Judah back in the time of Habakkuk. He and his fellow countrymen faced situations over two and a half thousand years ago that could very easily be the headlines in today's newspaper, if you know what a newspaper is. Today it's uh, Twitter feeds and all sorts of things like that. Very relevant headlines. So let's see for ourselves what Habakkuk has to say. I'm going to be reading the first 11 verses from Habakkuk chapter 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe at all. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. 
Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. So effectively, the, the first four verses are Habakkuk's prayer, and then from verse 6 to verse 11 is, is God's first answer to that prayer. Because as you'll see, Habakkuk then has a second complaint, and there's a response from verse 12 onwards. But the description that is here in the first four verses uh, paints a very bleak picture, doesn't it? Habakkuk cries out to the Lord, believing that the Lord's not heard his prayer. But as we'll see later in verses 5 to 11, the Lord does indeed answer his prayer, but even that answer paints an even bleaker picture. So I want to show you from these 11 verses three factors to God's sovereignty and how we ought to respond in difficult times. Now the first factor is the situation in verses 1 to 4. Now I've already painted a bit of a picture of what it was like back then, but let's just dig in a little, de little deeper. In verse 1, we introduce to the man the oracle that the prophet Habakkuk saw. Now, apart from this book, very little is known about this man. Tradition tells us that he came from a priestly family, and the notations that we'll see in chapter 3 suggest that he's a musician, maybe from one of the musical tribes in the family of Levi. Regarding when he lived, well, the only clue that is given to us is in verse 6, where God refers to the Chaldeans also known as the Babylonians. Now, Babylon officially established its authority in Judah, over Judah in 605 BC, and they eventually destroyed Jerusalem in 587 BC. So it's generally accepted that Habakkuk is written sometime probably just before 605 BC, as the Babylonian power was starting to increase. But that's not the only problem, for the nation of Judah is also in moral decline. The cruel and oppressive King Jehoiakim is on the throne. Within the courts there is no justice, and the rich control the outcomes through bribery and corruption. The people are turning away from God and are turning instead to pagan gods. This is certainly a very dark period in the history of Israel and the Jewish nation. And the words that Habakkuk uses in verses 2 to 4 bring this out. He uses words like violence, iniquity, destruction, strife. Contention, paralyzed and wicked. Each word individually paints a very dark picture, but it just gets worse and worse. And then it, if you consider how Habakkuk feels, it, it becomes even worse. In verse 2, he, he claims that God doesn't hear his prayers and that he's not willing to save them. In verse 3, Habakkuk states that God is idle and merely watching what's going on, but doing nothing about it. In verse 4, he sees that there's no justice and that the righteous people are surrounded by the wicked. And all of this leaves people with a sense of no hope. No wonder Habakkuk is, is crying out, God, where are you? Just take a look at verse 2. Note that he asks, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Giving us the idea that this is not the first time Habakkuk has prayed this prayer. He's been praying this continually. He's been seeing all this going on and he's calling out to God. So here we have this godly man witnessing the evil in this, in this country, and this evil that is ultimately against God himself. 
And so as the people turn away from God, Habakkuk turns to God. However, he still senses that God is not listening to him, or that God has no desire to save his people. Have you ever felt that way at times? That you feel that God's not hearing you? Let me just tell you this, don't rely on your feelings. They're subjective. It's just a feeling, it's not necessarily the truth. Because the reality is that God always answers prayer. Sometimes he answers with a yes. Sometimes with a later, be patient. And other times with a no. We forget that no is also an answer to prayer. But we think because God's given us a no, he's not answered us. But we don't like the no, do we? We may put up with the later, be patient, but the no, we don't like. And to some, that answer is inconceivable. How dare God say no? Didn't he promise to give me whatever I ask for in his name? But no, as I say, is still an answer. And the problem is we have a, a similar perspective as Habakkuk. We expect God to answer us in a certain way and at a certain time. He expects God to give him a yes and immediately remove the violence. Are we any different when we have trouble in our life? How often do we, when he answers us with later or no, do we become bitter and complain about him? How often do we bring a whole list of complaints to, to, to God? Like, look at the state of the nation. We look at crime and the economy. We, we make requests about our home, our children, our spouse, our work, even our studies and our churches. We accuse God of not giving us what we want, of not addressing our needs and the desires according to our expectations. The problem is we don't see things from God's perspective. God has an answer that's far greater than we could ever hope or imagine. We just need to learn to trust him, and that's going to come out a little bit later in this passage. So this brings us to the second factor of God's sovereignty. We've seen the, we've seen the situation, we've seen the problem. Now we come to the solution, and we'll skip over verse 5 for a moment, and just we'll come back to that later. But just get quickly at verses 6 to 11. There we learn that God is raising up the Chaldeans to deal with the problem of Judah's sin. What? This doesn't make sense. God is raising up a nation that's more violent and wicked than the nation I'm living in. He's using somebody even worse to come and discipline God's people. It's like using dynamite to kill a fly. It's just, it's way too much, Lord. Violent nation to come and deal with a problem. And just look at some of the descriptions for the Babylonians that we have here. In verse 6, they seize dwellings, not their own. In verse 7, we're told that they're dreaded and fearsome. In verse 8, they're described as eagles, swift to devour, swooping in from afar so quickly that before a nation knows it, they're destroyed. In verse 9, they're described as violent and taking captives. In verse 10, we see that they scoff and laugh at other nations' rulers and fortresses, showing pride and arrogance. And finally, in verse 11, they're likened to a violent wind that blows through, causing destruction, and before you know it, it's gone. I'm sure you get the picture. These Babylonians are an extremely violent and aggressive nation. No wonder Habakkuk is shocked and further questions God, as, as you'll see if you read on in verses 12 to 17, that he comes to God with a second complaint. But there's something very important to note here that's so easy to miss. And just go back to verse 6. Note God's words. He says, 
I am raising up the Chaldeans. I, God. This violent, aggressive nation that devours its enemies and goes around with such pride and arrogance is being raised up by God himself. Now this is something many don't like. Many believe that bad things happen, the devil does things to us, and somehow God uses them, or God just reacts to those situations, that God's not in control of it. But here we see that God is actually raising up the Chaldeans. God is raising Judah's enemy to devour them. Now this seems cruel, doesn't it? And almost implies that God is the cause of evil. But you must never think that way. Because note what God does not say here. He does not say, I am making the, e the Chaldeans into an evil nation to attack you. He doesn't say he's, he's not raising up a whole new evil people group. No, he, the, the, the words imply here that the, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, are already evil people. He's just going to use them for his purposes. He's going to raise them up. They're already evil. He's going to raise them up to come and take over Judah. He's directing their evil for his ultimate goodwill. What this shows us is that God is sovereign over evil. No evil can befall a person unless God has allowed it. And we see that in the book of Job as well. Because you see, evil doesn't take God by surprise. He doesn't merely react to the evil that happens, nor is he the author of evil, Yet somehow it's all part of his eternal plan. As we're told in Isaiah 46 verse 10, God declares the beginning from the end and he is working all things for his good pleasure. All things. Not some things. Not just the good things, the things that we like. But all things. Evil things. The bad things. The things we don't enjoy. God has decreed it all to occur. It's all under his control. And it's all ultimately serving his purpose even when it happens to believers. Here in Habakkuk, this means that the people of Judah, God's people, God's chosen people, are going to be taken into captivity, and worse still, maybe even killed, and Habakkuk is probably going to be one of them. He's going to experience this captivity himself. Now we all know that no one is perfect. Paul tells us in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Yet here we have this seemingly godly man who serves his God and asking God to heal his land, yet he too will be taken into captivity. Yet he too will experience this judgment, this evil that, that God is going to allow to happen to his people. This doesn't seem fair, does it? In fact, that's exactly how Habakkuk feels. And you get a sense of that when you, when you read verses 12 to 17 of chapter 1. The problem, though, is again one of perspective. As humans, we want an answer to everything, don't we? Something goes wrong, and we ask why. Someone hurts us, and we, we go to them and say, why did you do that? Something evil happens, and we ask, how could God let that happen? These are questions that we all ask, and we'll see how God responds to some of that in, in, the, in the next section, when the next time I do devotion. But to answer those questions for today, let, let's consider the third factor regarding sovereignty. We've seen the situation, we've seen the solution. Now we're going to look at the significance. Why is this message important, both for Habakkuk and for us 2,500 years later? 
How does this apply to us today? Well, in many ways, the application is obvious. As we've seen that looking in the situation, there are many similarities between the state of Judah and the situation in the world today. The world is still full of corruption, violence, and people doing their own thing. As we learn in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. Generation after generation has repeated the same evils of the past. People continue to do what is right in their own eyes. And we're wanting God to deal with it, like Habakkuk. And everyone blames the, those who came before them. Adults blame their parents or their grandparents. The youth blame our generation for the problems in society. The government blames it on colonialism or the previous government. But in reality, the problem doesn't lie with those who came before. Yes, they were, we were raised by our parents and have inherited some of their traits, their genes and, or their issues, or we copy their sin because that's what we learned as we were growing up. And yes, some of the problems were initially brought about by bad decisions, and even in governments, and the decisions they made 30 years ago. But the truth is we make our own decisions. We can either choose to live as products of the generation that came before us, who made their mistakes, or we can choose to be different and change. Even closer to home, in our churches, our workplaces and families, Many of the problems we're experiencing today are because of decisions made today. Now, why am I saying this? Well, simply because irrespective of the time in which people live, we all have the same problem. We're all dealing with the same issue. It's just dressed up in different clothing. And that issue is sin. Yes, generations before us made mistakes. But so do we. They, they sinned, and so do we. It doesn't give us an excuse just to carry on with the way things are. And Habakkuk had to contend with the sin in his day, and we have to contend with it in ours. The problem that Habakkuk and the other prophets had to deal with regarding sin is the same things that you and I have to face and battle with on a daily basis. But we know what happened to the nation of Judah. God's solution was to send the violent Chaldeans to deal with their sin, and the nation had to spend 70 years in captivity. Seventy years in a foreign land. And prophecy that was fulfilled within years, if not months, of Habakkuk penning these words. But you know what? Judah had been warned in the past. And this highlights the point of we can learn from previous generations and not repeat what they did because we make our own decisions. Because back in Joel chapter 2, about 200, written about 200 years earlier, God warned the nation of what was to come. A warning where the descriptions are very similar to what we see here in the book of Habakkuk. So the people of Judah were without excuse. They had been warned previously. But his warning in Joel came with a promise. That should they repent and call upon the Lord, he may indeed have mercy on them and give them blessing instead of destruction. And that's exactly what they did in the time of Joel. But the situation is the same now in the time of Habakkuk. But they have not decided to repent. The point is, Judah is responsible for the situation. They have no one to blame but themselves. The sin that the people in the time of Joel had to repent of is the same sin that the people in the time of Habakkuk had to repent of. And guess what? It's the same sin that we have to repent of. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying in any way that you, the, the reason why you're experiencing pain and suffering is because of, of a sin in your life that 
God is specifically punishing you for a specific sin. That may be the case at times, but it's not true all the time. And in reality, we can never really know if that is exactly the, the reason why we're going through something. Because we're living in a sinful, fallen world. That's the realities of the fall from Genesis chapter 3. And we experience the difficulties and pains because nothing's perfect. And other people, they sin, and we are, we're the victims of what they do, but it's not necessarily something that we've done. We are all, in one way or another, experiencing pain and suffering as a result of sin, full stop, irrespective of it being our own or someone else's. Because remember, as I mentioned earlier, Habakkuk is generally a righteous man, but he isn't perfect. But he's still a man who desires to serve God. And God isn't punishing Habakkuk for his sin. But he will be a victim of the punishment that is coming. The reality is everything bad we experience in this life can be traced right back to the Garden of Eden when sin first entered the world. Be it our personal sin, sin of others, or sin in general, the pain and suffering in this world is a result of the fall. However, sometimes the evil that we experience is, is actually for the good. We don't like to think it this way, but sometimes the evil we experience is for good. And that's precisely what Habakkuk and the nation of Judah are to learn. The point is, it all boils down to our trust in the sovereignty of God. Because now look at the verse that I skipped over. Verse 5. Note God's words to Habakkuk. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For me, I find great comfort in these words. It means that when I look at what's going on in the world, when I see all the evil and suffering, I know that I don't see the full picture. I know that if God had to tell me now directly what he is doing, I wouldn't believe him. God is in some way working in the background, doing things that we are totally unaware of, things that we would find un unbelievable, yet ultimately for good and according to his perfect will. God's plan for the nation of Judah, although it looks bleak on the outside, is for the nation's good. The Babylonians attack, the nation is taken into captivity, but you know what? Ever since the Jews were released from captivity and returned back to their homeland 70 years later, they have never, as a nation, worshipped any other god. Yes, there have been splinter groups and individuals may have chased other gods, but as a nation, they are still monotheistic and worship only one god. That's why it's so difficult to convert Jews today. They are holding to this. They have not let go of the one god. So their captivity in the Babylon was cruel. And it was difficult and horrible for them. But the people of God learned their lesson. It was ultimately for their good. So are you going to learn your lesson? Are you going to deal with a sin in your life and, and turn to God? Are you going to trust Him and fix your eyes on Him and not on your circumstances? Knowing that what you are going through is ultimately part of God's plan? even though you don't understand it? As in the time of Habakkuk, if God had to tell you today what his plan is for this nation, for your church, for your work, for your family, or for you individually, you would never believe him. But you need to be like Habakkuk, who eventually 
in this, when the book comes to a close, he learned to trust God and know that all things are going to work out. Folks, God is working behind the scenes in ways that you cannot imagine. He's allowing pain and suffering because it has a greater plan. A plan where you may not see the result of it today, but you will see it in the future. And ultimately, you'll see the result for all eternity. So if you're asking the same question as Habakkuk was all those years ago, God, where are you? Here is his answer. He is right here. He is with you. He is working together all things for good. All he asks of you this morning is for you to trust him. The same thing that he asks of Habakkuk. He's asking you in the words of the psalmist in Psalm 46 verse 10. You know the words, be still and know that I am God. Not still in the sense of being quiet, although that is somewhat implied, but the, the Hebrew literally means let go and be patient. Let go. God is working in your life and in the events of this world in ways that you cannot imagine. You must just let go and trust him. However, the command of Psalm 46 is not focused on the letting go, but rather on the knowing. God's commanding you to know him. In other words, you let go in order to know that God is in control and sovereign. You let go in order to know the power of God in your life. Give up trusting in yourself. Give up on making demands of God. Instead, experience the glory of Him being in control. And one day, you will be, He will be exalted among the nations. He'll be exalted among the earth, and when He is, you will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that He is God. And then when you look back over your life, you'll see that God's hand was always there. Every step of the way. Even now, if you just had to sit and think back of your own life, you'll be able to identify times where you'll say, God's hand was there. I could never have come through that if it wasn't for the hand of God. And that is the significance of this event in the life of this relatively unknown prophet named Habakkuk. He went from a terrible situation, heard about a seemingly worse solution, to learn that God is sovereign over all, and that he was working then, and he is still working today. Will you trust him? Let us pray. Oh Lord, yes, you are in control. Sometimes it's so difficult to see in our lives as things turn upside down. But Lord, help us just to trust in you. And Lord, I pray that the, the words of verse 5 will, will ring true in each one of us, that we'll just say, I can't see the big picture. And even if you, Lord, had to tell us what is happening, we would not believe it. But the Lord, help us to trust in you. No matter how bleak things may seem, and although things may appear to go from bad to worse, help us, Lord, to continue to trust you. For you are sovereign. You are in control. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. Help us in this, we pray. Amen.